Welcome to another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 34? Well, now that we have 20 minutes on the clock, we have a problem. You might remember this, you might not, but you see, God had given Moses 10 commandments. You might have heard of them. And he had written under his own power. Moses didn't carve them, but God had written the 10 commandments on these two stone tablets. And then Moses had come down Mount Sinai and he had seen the people partying and drinking and getting it on. And in his anger, he said, you don't deserve these. And he threw the tablets down and smashed them. But God wanted his law inscribed for the people. God wanted his people to know his best plans for them. You know, the good news is uh, Jesus said that there's coming a time when the true believers will have the law of God etched on our hearts and not just on tablets of stone. And, and I believe that, that in this new and better covenant of grace that Jesus established on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant of the law and then he gave us this new and better covenant of grace. And when we become Christians, God the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Jesus' death and resurrection and the law of God begins to be etched on our hearts. Somebody says, how do I know if I'm really a Christian or not? Uh, my first response is the fact that you're asking that question tells me that you might be. Uh, but also, is the law of God, and, and I don't mean like do this, don't do that, but how is the heart of God being inscribed on your heart? That's, that's a telltale sign to me. I'll tell you, we live in a broken world. And I know people who have come to Jesus, who have given their lives to Christ, and they come with all kinds of baggage. And then church folks go, how can they act like that? I'm getting all judgmental and stuff. Well, you know what? Jesus is working on them. And they're willing to work with God. And God's doing his work. And the old things are, are being shed and gotten rid of and healed. The question isn't about those guys. Because I trust that, that God's doing his work and that they want God to do the work and they're, they're all part of this. The question is, what about us who've been following Jesus for a long time and we think we've got it all figured out and we don't? What are we allowing God to shed in our lives? What are we allowing God to, to etch on our hearts? Now, the problem is that Moses destroyed those Ten Commandments, so God says, hey, we want you to put up a new one. Now, there is an inevitable... Um, comparison to be made to the story of Joseph Smith and how he found those golden tablets that supposedly contained uh, the story of the Book of Mormon and then they were lost and so then they found new ones but they were different and um, what about that? Here's what I would say. Our faith does not hinge on Ten Commandments of Stone uh, but the, the, the Mormon teaching 
which I believe is a false teaching, does in large part hinge on that for validity. So I would say that. Uh, also, the pieces of stone, you could put them back together well enough, I'm guessing, to kind of compare and, and check if you wanted to. But everything that happened between Moses smashing that and the, you know, the, the uh, verse, uh, you know, chapter 32, and everything that happened between then and chapter 34, I, I, I think there's so many other things that confirm Moses' validity to the people that there probably wouldn't have been much question. Now, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write them, I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. He's kind of reminding Moses, I didn't tell you to do that. It kind of tells me that you can do what God told you to do, and you can still do it the wrong way if we let ourselves get too in control. Verse 2, be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come but you or may be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks or herds may graze on the front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled the two stone tablets like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as Yahweh had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down on the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Then he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generations. Okay, so let's talk about this for a minute. Last week, we read how God, Moses said to God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God said, if I showed you my glory, you would die, but I'm going to let you go on top of the mountain and I will hide you in the cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand. And then after I've passed by, I will let you see a taste of my glory. So that's what's happening here. And God's glory is being praised Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate one and glorious or gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. There is this wrong idea. We've talked about it on this podcast before. This wrong idea that says that there are two gods in the Bible and there's the New Testament God. That's Jesus. And he's sweet and he's kind and he wouldn't hurt a fly and he's such a sweetheart. And then there's the Old Testament God and he's mean and he's angry. And ooh, you don't want to get him mad. And he's always out smiting people and smoting people and causing all kinds of death, destruction, and mayhem. You might have heard this idea. You might have believed it yourself at one point or even today. But think about how God describes himself here to Moses. The compassionate one, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Is that the God you think of when you read the Old Testament? It should be. Part of the problem is we read about God destroying something or judging something or bringing um, plague or famine, and we, we forget that, that it may have been hundreds of years. Abraham was given the promised land, but then God said, hey, it's not time yet. He was still extending grace to the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all of these people that lived in the promised land. And when you read what historians believe was the common practice of those people, you go, man, God, why did you wait so long to wipe them out? But God said, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And he is still showing grace 
and giving them a chance to repent. But when the time comes, the time comes. Because then he says, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Hold on the children to the third and the fourth generation and focus first on this, that he does not leave wickedness unpunished. There are times when I look around and I think, God, why have you let the guilty go unpunished? I know somebody whose parents were murdered by a hitman. That's the kind of thing you think only happens in a movie or it happens like in Russia or Eastern Europe, right? That doesn't happen here in America. But I know somebody whose parents were murdered by a hitman. And they're pretty sure they know who ordered the hit. And that person is still free 25 years later. Has never been punished. Never once. Because there's just not enough proof. And quite honestly, prosecutors don't want don't to take something to court and risk losing and then it hurts their record in any future political career they might have. Where's the justice for them? Where's the justice for those who have been oppressed by the people that are supposed to protect them? Where's the justice for, I mean, when you think about like George Floyd was murdered and we all saw the video and you watched the video and you said, just take your knee off of his neck. You have him in cuffs. Why do you have to do that? Why do you have to keep going? And it makes you think how many people have died or suffered injustice, but there was no videotape. Where's their justice? You, you hear stories about people who go to jail for the littlest things. And then you hear about the blatant rule-breaking and law-breaking that happens by our officials in, in government. People in, in high powerful positions outside of government, but they have a lot of money and they get away with things. Where's their justice? I have to trust that God will be just. And I pray that God would have mercy on them and that they would repent and have their sins forgiven. But God will be just. I, I like what Timothy Keller said. He said, you know, people that have a problem with the justice of God are people that have lived an easy life. But if you have lived a life full of injustice, the idea that God would judge people doesn't bother you at all because you're crying out for justice. You're crying out for somebody to make things right. And so what God is saying is, I have mercy, I have love, I have compassion, that's who I am, but I won't leave wickedness unchecked. And there will come a day when God says, enough. I have had grace for this world. I have given humanity time to repent, and some have, but most have not. And on that day, God will say no more. And the final judgment of the world will begin. And I believe that the church will be removed in that time because there's no justice left for us. All of our judgment was taken by Jesus on the cross. So I don't fear the coming judgment of God but I fear for any who don't know Christ. Now he says, I punish the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Is this a teaching on generational curses? I do not believe so. I think it's poetic a bit that God is trying to say, hey, my, my justice is complete. My justice is complete. 
I, I would say this, though. All of us are sinners by nature. We are born sinners by nature, and then we become sinners by commission. We do it. We are sinners. We, are act, we act as sinners. So is generational sin a thing? Absolutely it is. Someone is abused as a child, and then they grow up and have kids, and they become abusive to their kids. They're emotionally abusive, physically abusive, verbally abusive, sexually abusive, and the, the cycles and the patterns of sin continue on from generation to generation to generation. Angie and I have talked a lot about this, just how thankful we are that, that both of our moms are converts to Christianity. They became Christians and broke generational cycles of sin on both sides of the family. And, and, and our kids are the, the first generation in Angie's family to have a dad around. And I'm the, my kids on my side are the second generation because I'm the first generation in my mom's family ever to have a dad around. So God is, is just trying to paint a picture of the fullness of his judgment. But you know what? We choose to continue in cycles of sin instead of letting God heal us and free us from it. And that won't go unchecked either. I can't blame somebody else for my own actions. I can't blame somebody else for what I do. Verse 8. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Yahweh, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And then Yahweh said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never done before in any nation in all the world. And the, you know, the people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, Yahweh, will do. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Idolatry is placing anything in the place of God that is not God. And in their day, they had stones and carved idols and poles or whatever, and those were their gods. In our day, we have our careers, we have our politics, we have sometimes our family, we have our education, we have our own will. These are things that we place up and we put them in place of God. Sometimes it's other people. We worship a celebrity or a sports figure, and I'm, I love sports, um, but, but I, I recognize that people can become idolatrous towards just about anything. And they can take something that's either neutral or it's good, and then we can corrupt it and make it bad. And he's warning them against this idolatry. A lot of these idolatries also were incredibly harmful. Human trafficking is what we would call it. They enslaved temple prostitutes that would be forced into sexual activity in these acts of worship around the Asherah pole children who were sacrificed before these altars to these carved images. These were horrible things. I think sometimes you hear stories about, you know, the, the, the Druids, uh, you know, meeting in the grove, and it was a magical time until you find stories about skulls they have found of children who were killed in those ancient pagan practices. 
you find stories of pre, you know, uh, prehistoric Europe and these mass graves they find near, uh, there's a place in Germany that's called like Germany Stonehenge and they find these mass graves of people who were killed. God says, get that out. Verse 15, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat with uh, eat their sacrifices. And then when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and your daughters, they will prostitute themselves to their gods and they will lead your sons to do the same. So what God is saying, look, can I not have Christian uh, non-Christian friends? Can I not uh, work with people who aren't Christians? No. In fact, I'm, I, I, I try really hard to have relationships with people who are not Christians. Not just so that I can, you know, like, there's, like I just genuinely, like I have friends that I just genuinely like and they're not Christians and I, I enjoy my friendship with them. At the same time, I want them to know Jesus. I don't make any bones about that. Like I'm not trying to hide it. I want anyone and everyone to hear about Jesus. But there's a difference between knowing somebody connecting with my neighbor, having, having uh, you know, conversations in the break room at work, and integrating myself in the world. And there are people who I've seen who have faith, and then it seems like it gets choked out because they've inter- integ- integrated themselves so deeply in the world that the next thing you know, the, the world is home base for them and the church is this place they visit. The opposite is, should be true. This should be home base my church, my church family. I don't just mean the building, but I mean my family. That should be home base. And the world should be the place that I go out as a missionary into. That's why he's saying, be careful about making treaties. I, I, think, I do think that churches and ministries should be careful about being entangled. I don't want us entangled with any political party. I don't want us entangled with any agenda-based group because they want a worldly agenda, and we are here to bring the kingdom of God. Do not make any idols. Again, an idol is anything that we elevate to be God in the place of God. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. Eat bread made without yeast as I have commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. This is the Passover meal. That's why when we do communion, we also take unleavened bread, um, sometimes it's a matzah cracker, a saltine cracker would work. Uh, we do these little wafers now. We used to do matzah crackers. Now we do these little wafers. Um, a tortilla would work. Uh, a lot of flatbreads would work in this case because it has an unleavened bread, no yeast. And the idea was that yeast is a picture of sin in the Bible. And Jesus, he said, he broke that unleavened bread and he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And so we remember that Jesus's body had no sin. He was the perfect sacrifice. So this, uh, verse 18, is describing the Passover. Verse 19, the first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Now, in the case of like the animals, those were what were given for sacrifice in the tabernacle or later the temple. In, the term, in, the, in terms of their sons, um, there was a, a ritual offering that they would give in place of their firstborn sons. But the idea was that the first fruits of everything we have is f- for God. 
And, and that's where we get this idea of tithe or taking the first fruits or the first tenth of our, of our labors, whether that's money or energy or whatever, and we give it to God. And that's hard to do. You know, a lot of people don't want to do that. But giving God the first fruits is just a small acknowledgement that God has given us everything. And he gave us the first fruits, that is Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for joining us again for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. New episodes are released every week. Apple Podcasts and Spotify for the audio versions. All you have to do is search Faith on Hill. We also have our Sunday morning audio on there as well. Video versions are available at our Facebook page. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Faith on Hill. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor here at Faith on Hill Church. My email is adam at faithonhill.com if you ever want to say hello. And if you haven't been uh, with us and connected with us as a part of the church family, just love to invite you. If you don't have a church or if you're not connected, get connected. We meet every Sunday morning at 1030. We have small groups that are meeting through the week. We want to see you grow and thrive in your faith in Jesus. God bless you.